and I don't want to take any of his psalms. So uh, we're doing James chapter 4. Um, so Ben uh, sent me a couple pictures. He's in Utah right now. So there's a couple pictures of a canyon. Um, I don't know what... Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're gorgeous canyons in person. Um, but the pictures, I mean, are pretty good, too. So that's, that's about all I know. They're doing good. He's, he he texts me back, so I know they're, they're still alive and kicking, all that. Um, <clears throat> so tonight's study is um, called In Your Face and Abundant Grace, and it's going to make more sense as we go through. Um, before we uh, continue, I just wanted to um, ask you all that uh, you'd be praying for uh, the middle school outreach. Um, we've been going in uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays now. They let us come in for two days. Um, but there's definitely some, definitely some, uh, some spiritual warfare going on. We got called into the principal's office yesterday, um, which uh, myself and two other homeschoolers, uh, it was, that was a first-time experience. I'm 30 years old, and that was the first time that's happened, sitting there waiting to go into the principal's office. It was fear and trepidation. But um, yeah, you know, when you talk about God's design and God's creation and design for male and female and all that kind of stuff, um, and then parents hear it and they tell their or kids hear it and they tell their parents, and then the parents tell the principal that they're upset, and then you get called in the principal's office. Um, but they let us stay in. Um, but yeah, kids are asking good questions. Uh, that all that kind of stuff, you know, sexuality and and all of that. It's a big topic, way more than a couple years ago when we were going in before before the pandemic. Um, and a, a lot of kids have a lot of questions. Um, and there are kids who are working through that, who identify different kind of ways, and they keep coming and they keep asking questions. Um, so just be praying for their hearts and that the the gospel would. Um, penetrate, and the Lord would just really protect the seeds that are, are going out. So, um, yeah, we go during lunchtime on both Wednesday and Thursday. So, we are in the book of James. Before we read it together, I'm going to give a little, uh, little bit of context. So, the book of James uh, is about genuine, single-minded faith. That's what James is, is communicating uh, to the, the readers and to us, right? Genuine faith, real faith. Faith. It's faith that is single-minded, which means it, it doesn't, it's not split in its thoughts on, on different matters. And so James, he's, he, he talks about a whole variety of, of subjects, of topics, and says, this is what faith looks like. This is how the people of God think and act and behave and view all these different aspects. So, so far, we're starting in chapter four because we're just diving in, um, but he's talked about what genuine faith looks like in trials, in temptation, uh, what it looks like in the way that we treat others, uh, what it looks like in the, the idea of having works with our faith, that that's an absolute must. Faith without works is dead. Um, he, he talked about what faith looks like in the way that we speak. Uh, and then the, the, the portion just before this, he talked about uh, being single-minded in our source of wisdom, that, that true wisdom comes from above and shows up in Good works, And he finished that in verse 18 of chapter 3, saying, Now the fruit of righteousness, the result of righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. Uh, but then James goes from that, talking about peace, to, um, to, to this part in chapter 4, where he talks about 
quarrels, where, where there's fighting, where there's striving, where there's disagreements and, and, and tension between the people of God. Right? Because he's saying it in chapter 3 that the people who follow Jesus should live at peace with one another. Uh, so he's saying, because I'm sure all of us have had different disagreements, fights, quarrels with other humans and other believers. Uh, so where does it come from? If the people of God should be people who live at peace with one another, that's the result of righteousness. Where, does this, where do these fights come from? And he starts in verse 1 asking this question, where do wars and fights come from among you? That's what James is going to be answering today. Where do they come from? Now, it would be far too easy to just blame the devil for everything, right? Anytime, you know, we get in an argument or we have a disagreement or there's any sort of relational tension, it's like, it's the devil. No, sometimes, yes, it may be, but it's not always because we're broken too. So what James is going to tell us is that these fights, these wars, it comes from our sinful desires, which are ultimately rooted in pride. So as he's talking in the big picture of James about being single-minded, uh, he wants us to learn in this passage we need to be single-minded about two things. Number one, the source of strife in our life, and then the solution to that problem. So when he says wars and, and fights, these are battle terms. These are battle terms. The war refers to like the whole campaign, and then the fights refer to more like an individual battle, right? So James is referring both to the, the big picture uh, as well as the individual conflicts that arise from that, arise from that issue, right? Like you say, you know, we may have lost the battle, but we'll win the war. Kind of like it's that same idea. He's talking about both aspects. Now, what he's going to say certainly applies to what we think of when we think of war, like between nations. Uh, but I don't think that's what James is really driving at here. He's not telling all the people of God, like, but you guys have been wondering why there's war in the world. Well, here's why. It applies to that because every war is, is ultimately decided by it's somebody's pride, it's some sin, it's some greed that is at the root of it. But I think he's more dealing with just the normal interpersonal conflicts that we all have in families, friendships, marriages, all types of relationships, there are conflicts. So James is going to tell us that the source of our conflicts is our own sinful desires to please ourselves, which ultimately stems from our pride. James is going to get in our face, right? James is going to get in our face. But he's also going to tell us about the abundant grace that God offers to us to walk in humility before God and man. So with that in mind, let's stand if you're able, and we're going to read through verse 10 together, and then we're going to dig in. So James 4, chapter 1, he says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, that you may ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, Lord, we know that your, your word is living and powerful and, and sharper than a two-edged sword. Um, and we just pray you'd speak to each one of us, Lord, both the, the conviction of, uh, of the pride that lies within our own hearts, the selfishness that uh, wants to be number one in our lives, um, but also, Lord, speak to us uh, much more so of the grace that you give us, that you give us more grace in that where sin abounds, where pride abounds, where selfishness abounds, grace abounds much more. And I pray that we could leave here uh, just relying on your grace, Lord. Um, so we ask you to speak to us through your word tonight. And Lord, I ask that you would give me grace to communicate um, in, uh, cl- with clarity and in humility, just so that your word could be understood. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> All right, so we have the question, where do wars and fights come from among you? And James starts to give us the answer. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure? Your desires for pleasure, it means like out of your, your sinful, sensual lusts. It's the desire to get what one does not have and greatly desires, right? It's a, it's a sinful desire to get what somebody else has. And it says it's, it can come from your, your desire, your lust for, for pleasure. And it, that's a desire to please ourselves. And it's a desire that I think we all have. We find in ourselves so easily is we want to do what we want to do, right? We want to do what makes us happy, what pleases us. But at the root of that, it's pride. It's saying, I should be number one. My needs, my concerns, my preferences, my desires, they should be number one. That's the most important thing because pride is exalting ourselves. It's lifting up ourself. And so we see James is saying that the strife in our life, the, the contentions, the fighting, it ultimately comes from our pride. It comes from a desire to please ourselves above everything else. And he says, this desire, it says it wars in our members, in our bodies. You think of Romans 7.23, where Paul says, he's like, but I see another law in my members, in my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So there is a battle going on inside of us, right? Between the spirit and the flesh. 1 Peter 2 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So we have this this battle raging in ourselves. And that's probably why James is using battle terms. So he's talking about wars and fightings, these more military terms is because inside of us there is a war going on because we have this prideful sin nature but we're no longer subject to it right we're no longer bound to do what sin tells us to do like we were before but sin desperately wants it's like clawing at us saying i want control back right you think of you know we were in chains right and and sin was like there are our master standing over us saying do this do this do this and we, and we did it, right? We did it so easily. But through Jesus, who has broken the chains, who has set us free 
from sin. We don't have to serve sin anymore. Sin still wants to come and say, hey, do this. And we're so used to doing it, it's so easy to go back. But we're no longer bound. We have no obligation to obey sin because now we obey Jesus. But that desire is still there because sin wasn't like, hey, do this thing you don't want to do. Sin said, do this thing that you do want to do. And that's a lot harder to say no to. So we have to to keep that in check, right? By by daily being in God's word, by walking in the spirit, by allowing his spirit to have authority in our lives. So that pride's in us. It's, It's warring, it's fighting. But what happens if that pride goes unchecked, right? What happens if if our sin nature gets to be in control again. James is gonna, he's gonna tell us, right? He's gonna tell us six things in the next few verses uh, that will happen if pride goes unchecked about uh, what pride can do in our life. He's gonna kind of get in our face um, and that's okay. So we're, we're ready for it. Verse two, he says, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. This is the first three, but we're gonna look at the, the translation in the ESV. It, it, it punctuates it a little differently and I think it makes a little more sense. So in the ESV, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So the first thing that we see is that, is that pride causes lust, which leads to murder, or as Jesus referred to it as hatred, right? So that desire, that lust, in the Greek it's uh, epithumeo, which means to set the heart upon, to long for, to covet, to desire, right? Pride causes us to see what somebody else has and, and long for it, right? That could be a physical object. We see somebody with a, a, a car that we like, we're like, I want that car, right? But it could also be a position or a title that someone has. It could be an opportunity that someone has, right? Honestly, I think our hearts can, they can, can lust or long for just about anything as long as we think it's going to make us happy, because that's the illusion is we think it's going to make us happy. If I had this, if I had this opportunity, if I had this house, if I had this, you know, situation, if I had this much authority at work, whatever, then like that's what I really want. Then I'll be happy. But he says you, you, you lust, you, you desire, and you do not have, right? So, so there's this, you're trying to get it, but, but you don't get it. You don't get it. It doesn't, because it's not going to make you happy, even if you do get it, Right? I mean, how many of you guys remember, like as a kid, you get like a new toy that you really wanted and then you get it and it's cool for a while, but then it's just old, it's boring, right? It doesn't really make you happy even if you get it. But James, in this case, he's saying that you didn't get the thing that you wanted and it said it leads to, to murder. Now, I don't think it's very, it's super often that, especially among believers, that if somebody doesn't get something that they want of somebody else's, that it leads to murder taking someone's life. But Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder. So I think it's a lot more common if for us to, in our hearts, to hate somebody if they have what we want and we don't have it, right? Like, man, I wish I had that. And hate, just, just frustration with that person can grow up in our hearts. And then the, your relationship with that person is then, it's not good anymore, right? You can't just hang out with them if you're inwardly, you're just you're just frustrated, you just really wish you had that, and you're just mad at them, you're hating them, you're, you're murdering them in your heart because God has not given you this thing and he's given them that thing, right? We, that, 
that leads to, to like a breakdown in relationships. Like James says, it's the warring, it's the, it's the fighting. This is not the kind of peace that James was saying in chapter 3 should characterize the people of God. Number two is that pride leads to jealousy, which leads to contention. Again, he says you covet, right? It, the in Greek is zeleo, which means to desire hotly to possess. Or you think of like a, like a fire, like, like a stoked fire, and that's like your desire for that thing, right? Another word could be uh, to be jealous, right? So, there's, so pride leads to this, this jealousy of, of what somebody else has. He says, but you can't obtain it. Again, it's, it's, it's not obtained because following our sinful desires, even when we let that jealousy just burn, it doesn't end up with us being satisfied, right? He says, so, so you fight and quarrel, right? These are the same words as there's fightings and, and wars among you. It's, it's the same words, fighting and, and quarrels. So, you know, you think about how Paul told Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain, right? But pride causes discontentment with what God has given us, and it leads us to warring and, and battling with others. Because again, it's hard to be at peace with somebody that you're jealous over, right? That you're jealous about what they have. Number three is that pride leads to trying to be your own God. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Do not ask. Do not ask what? Do not ask who? It's a reference to prayer. It's a reference to turning to God, asking him to provide your needs, right? That prayer is what is implied. But he says, you don't have these things that you're, that you're desiring, that you're craving, that you think you want, because you don't ask. You're not going to God, right? So pride causes us to look to ourselves, because that's what's happening. You say, I want this thing. I think I want this thing. And instead of going to the Lord, we're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to desire, I'm going to covet it, I'm going to be angry at that person if I don't get it. And so we see that pride leads us to look to ourself, right? To, to, it's up to me to provide my needs. It's up to me to get the things that I want. It's up to me to satisfy myself, right? Instead of seeking the Lord to satisfy our hearts, instead of seeking the Lord to provide our needs, instead of seeking the Lord to give us what we need, we look to ourselves. Now, we have to remember that what got Satan kicked out of heaven was that he says, I want to be like the Most High. He wanted to make himself his own God, right? That's not good company to be in, but that same pride that wants to exalt ourselves, saying, I have confidence in myself to try to get what I want instead of trusting the Lord, that will creep up quite happily into our hearts if it does not go unchecked, if we allow it. Number four, pride leads to self-serving prayers. You know, I, I'm sure James can, can hear some of the people, you know, in the church responding like, what do you mean I don't ask? Of course I pray. Like, I've asked God for these things. I pray for these things. And James says, you ask and you do not receive, right? These, these might be these prayers that for the very thing the person was lusting of, like, man, I really want that person's car. Like, Lord, can I have their car? But they weren't given. And James says, it's because you ask amiss, right? You've missed in your, in, in your prayer, right? Because your desire is that you may spend it on your own pleasure, that you may spend it on your, your pleasure. The prayer is, is out of line because the root of that prayer, 
is not God's glory, it's our own pleasure, it's our own lust, right? And so James is saying, you're not gonna receive that because your prayer is not in line with God's will. Now, I know it's, it's often quoted, you know, this verse in John 14 that Jesus said, you know, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And we're like, why shouldn't I get it? But if we look at the verses preceding it, it gives us some understanding. Jesus said to his disciples, truly, truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I am doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to my Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So Jesus makes this promise. I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that, here's the purpose, the Father may be glorified in Jesus. So we see the glory of the Father and the Son as the foundation, as the motivation for the prayers that he's gonna answer. And then verse 14, in its context, if you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. But in the context, it's he will do the things that will bring glory to the Father. So you compare that to James saying, you're, you're not getting these things because you're asking not for God's glory, you're asking it for your glory. And so we see how pride will twist our prayers to be self-serving prayers. Now, I want to point out that this is not saying that it's wrong to pray for yourself, right? To ask the Lord to help you, right? I, I did that like 10 minutes ago at the start of this. But what James is saying is our heart. What is our motive? Are we asking the Lord to help us through the day, to give us grace, to be kind and compassionate, to share the gospel with our coworkers, to love our kids, to be loving to our, our family members? Because all those things align with God's glory, right? They're not self-centered, self-seeking prayers. They're not rooted in lust and jealousy and selfishness. But we can expect a big fat no if our prayers are rooted in those things. If our prayers are rooted in our own pride, we can just expect God's going to say no. Number five, pride leads to committing adultery against God. James, you know, very subtly and gently says, adulterers and adulteresses. Now, in, in the Greek, from, from what I understand, it literally just says adulteresses. And it's kind of like back in the day, this was kind of a, a slam, they would use the, the feminine version of anything, uh, of a word, um, as kind of a diss. Uh, that's just how the language worked at that point. And James is, he's pulling out this trick, right? He's like, listen, you adulteresses. Like, that is what pride makes you. That is what pride makes us. Because as believers, right, we belong to Jesus. He has redeemed us. That means he has purchased us. So if we leave off serving God in order to serve our own lust and pride, James says that's adultery, right? That's committing adultery because as the bride of Christ, we are to be faithful to the bridegroom. And if we go and we try to serve and please another man or another self, James says that's adultery. And number six, pride makes us an enemy of God, right? When we serve ourself instead of the Lord, Right? We're placing ourselves in opposition to God because our selfish desires, they never serve to further the gospel or the kingdom. And even if it's in a passive way, serving ourselves is to fall in step with or to be friends with the world, those who are against God. And so James says, friendship with the world, if you're aligning yourself with the world, which the whole motive of the world is to seek self, right? 
better yourself. Like, you got to take care of yourself. Like, got to look out for number one. That's the motto of the world, not the, not the children of God. And so if we fall in line with that, James says you're putting yourself at enmity with God, right? You are making yourself an enemy of God. He says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, if you want to do that, he says, make yourself an enemy of God by serving our selfish pride. That's not the place we want to be. Now, if you're thinking, boy, this escalated quickly, right? Like we, we just started with, you know, you're, you're lusting for something that somebody else has. And then suddenly, like, you're enemies of God, right? We don't want to be the enemies of God. It's like, James, why are you, why are you ramping it up so quick? But I think, I think that's the point, because he wants us to understand that our sinful, prideful, self-seeking desires, they're totally and completely incompatible with following Jesus. It's not just like, this isn't the best way to do it. It's in complete opposition to following Jesus. James is telling us that we have to be single-minded in our understanding of this. We can either serve self and be an enemy of God, or we can serve God and be a friend of God. God desires that we would serve him. So if you feel like James is in your face, that's good. That means that we've understood correctly what James wants us to understand. But God desires that we'd serve him. And he says in verse five, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, right? God is jealous for our hearts. This is where James's tone starts to change. Now I wanna point out, it says the scripture says, and then probably in quotations, it says the, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Now, if you look in your Bible, and you know, oftentimes it has the cross-reference to where something is when it has a quote, you'll notice this is quite absent. Uh, I was very disappointed, because I'm like, where is that in the Old Testament? And I looked, and there's no, there is no footnote. Um, and what I was reading in commentaries is basically that James is, he's communicating a biblical truth that's based on a lot of different uh, places in the Old Testament, but it's not a direct quotation from Scripture. And before we get too worked up, we do this all the time, right? We, we say things all the time that communicate 100% accurate biblical truth, but they're not a word-for-word -word Bible verse. Um, but also, the Holy Spirit uh, knows the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit who inspired this can say that the Scripture says and then say something, and it's the Scripture saying it. So I don't think we really have a problem here. But just in case you look for the reference, because you want to find it in the Old Testament, um, you're not going to find it. It's, it's, it's a New Testament passage. I think the Holy Spirit's quoting himself, which is what he does every time he quotes any Scripture. Um, so now we've got that solved. He says, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Right? God is jealous for our hearts. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us, he doesn't want to share a room with darkness. He doesn't want to share a room with our stinky, selfish pride, okay? He wants all of our hearts. He desires all of our affection. Right? Just like every husband and wife wants 100% of the affection and devotion of their spouse. Not 85, not 50, not 20, not 92. They want 100, right? And you think that God, he wants to be our provider. He desires, he's a good father who wants to take care of us to supply all of our needs, and so he's jealous to do that. So when we go and try to do what God says he's going to do for us, he's like, no, that's, that's my job. That's my thing. He's jealous to have all of us. And so he's not going to let us believe that selfishness and pride even get a sliver of our heart because he loves us too much 
to let us serve a terrible, pitiful, weak God like ourselves. So, Houston, we have a problem. Because if you might notice, uh, you might be saying this, I know I am, I'm so easily and so often selfish, more than I even realize. My pride creeps in all the time. Anybody else? So what do we do? If our pride is going to make us an enemy of God, what are we supposed to do? Well, we keep reading. Because verse 6 is very hopeful. He says, but something is changing. We're learning new information. He says, but he gives more grace. He didn't say, but you can change. He didn't say, but you just have to try harder. He didn't say, ah, here's like a miracle pill you can take. He says, no, it's, it's, a, it's a but God, but he. So the problem lies in us. The solution lies with God. He says, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Now think about this. He says, he gives more grace. And you might be thinking, more grace than what, right? Because typically, when you say I have more something, you're comparing it. I think the grammatical term is it's a comparative, right? You could say I have more chocolate milk in my cup than this person. But if you say I have more chocolate milk, you're like more, more than who, more than what? But I think that's the point. It's kind of a cliffhanger. It's an incomplete sentence. No, it's not an incomplete sentence. It's a fill in the blank. That's what it is. Because it says, he gives more grace. So whatever your sin, he gives more grace. Whatever your lust, he gives more grace. Whatever your pride, he has more grace. Whatever your selfishness is, he gives more grace. What he's saying is that his grace is always, always bigger. It's higher, it's deeper, it's wider, it's longer, stronger, more powerful than your sin. So if after reading the first five verses, you feel discouraged because you're like, man, my pride is all the time. My selfishness is just pervasive in my life. He says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. God is a God who gives more grace, abundant grace, overflowing grace. Don't believe me? Let's look at a couple verses that talk about his abundant grace. So here goes the fire hose. Romans 5, 17 says, for if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. 2 Corinthians 9.8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance of grace for every good work. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Not the barely enough of his grace, the riches of his grace. Next chapter in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, it says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.14, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. The throne is a throne of grace. It says that we may obtain mercy and find Grace, not search for or hope to find that we may find grace to help in time of need. And then in both of his epistles, Peter, 
he starts out like this. Chapter 1, or 1 Peter, yeah, in 1 Peter he says, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus said, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Not barely measured out just a little bit, be multiplied. And then 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, grace and peace, again, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So God is a God who gives more grace. He gives abundant grace. Where pride abounds, God gives more grace. And that should be very comforting to us because whatever the pride, however much pride we feel in our hearts or that we see in our hearts or that the Holy Spirit reveals to our hearts, it's never going to crush us because here's more grace. He gives more grace. And so therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So based on this knowledge, this understanding that God is going to give more grace, he says, God is going to resist the proud. So in our pride, God resists us. But in our humility, God lavishes abundant grace. Right? The difference is not a change in action. He doesn't say, once you've accomplished these things, once you've like, not been proud for like at least a week, then I'll give you grace. It says, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. It's not a change of action. It's a change of heart. And when we have humility before God, it's going to lead to humility before others. Because most of these things, right, the, the lust and the, and the, the murdering and the, and the coveting and fighting, that's person to person. But James is saying the solution to, to these issues is a vertical thing. It's, it's humility before God. And that is going to bring about humility before other people. So James points out five facets of humility before God in the next couple verses. The first one, he says, submit to God. This is step one, right? Humility and submission are one and the same. Because humility means to place ourselves in a lower position, to make ourselves low. And so submission to God is to make ourselves low before God. It's acknowledging his rule over our life. You think of right before a king, people come and they bow their knee. They make themselves low, putting themselves in a position where they're acknowledging you are greater than me. So the very first thing we must do is submit to God. That means he's in charge. 100% he's in charge. Now number two, he says, resist the devil. So resist the devil and he will flee from you. Because ultimately, right, sin exists in this world because Satan rebelled against God because of his pride and he convinced us to do the same. So we can resist Satan. And James tells us we must resist Satan. He's resist the devil and he will flee from us because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Because what does Satan want you to do? He wants, he's going to encourage you towards sin. He's going to encourage you in your pride. He's going to encourage you in your selfishness. He's going to be like, you deserve it, right? You should have this thing. You should get your way. You should be number one. But in doing that, we ultimately are serving Satan. And so James is saying, as we submit to God, the next thing to do is when the devil comes and tries to convince us to do the, the things of our old life, he says, resist him. And it says, and he will flee. Because when we put up a fight and we say, no, I'm going to serve Jesus, we're walking close with Jesus, and he will flee from that. He will flee from that. But resisting him is not the end, right? We don't just resist the devil and watch him run away, and, and we're like, all right, cool. Number three says, draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And it's like two seconds ago, James says, 
Your pride is going to make you an enemy of God. But now we see we have this sweet promise of forgiveness and nearness that comes through humility. So when we've submitted ourselves to God, we've humbled ourselves before God, now look at this promise. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Not when you've cleaned yourself up and made yourself good enough. When you say, Lord, I'm going to submit to you. I'm not going to follow the enemy anymore. And as we draw near to him, he's not like, okay, you've, you've wandered away, you know, for, for two years. So now it's going to take you two years to wander your way back here. As soon as we start moving towards him, he's going to move towards us. I don't know why he does it. And it doesn't make sense because we don't deserve it. Like we should have to dig ourselves out of a hole, right? It seems more, seems more just that way, that we would just dig ourselves out of the, the hole that we made. But no, it says draw near to him. He will draw near to you. And our presence is not going to be tolerated. It's not going to be like, oh, well, glad you're back. Like, kind of going to give the cold shoulder for a while. No, our presence near him is desired because we see him moving towards us as we move towards him. It's not begrudgingly allowed. It is welcomed. It's wanted. I read this quote from a, a Christian author, J. Oswald Sanders, and it says, each of us is as close to God as we choose to be. Each of us is as close to God as we choose to be. It was so meaningful to me that I wrote it on an actual sticky note and put it on my desk. But I want to remember that because I, I know there's, there's a saying, it's like, if you feel far from God, who moved, right? The Lord didn't wander away from us. But when we come to him, he's going to draw near to us. Number four, the fourth thing we learn about humility is, is it a change of action and a change of heart. So he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Right? It's cleansing your hands. Your hands are what you, you act with, right? It's how, what you do things with. And so what he's saying is that as part of submitting to God in humility, what we do, what we touch, what we walk in, what we look at, our actions have to change because heart change comes with a change in the way that we live, right? So he's saying, cleanse your hands, you sinners, right? Now James knows that if we're walking in humility, we're not gonna get offended by being called sinners and double-minded, so he does. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. I think he's covering both sides because we, what we believe shows up in both of our hearts, in both our hearts and our actions. And so it's not just, okay, clean up your hands and... You know, Jesus called the Pharisees, you know, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're, dirt, you're clean on the outside, but you're dirty on the inside. James is saying we need to be clean both. We need to purify our hearts as well. It means we have to allow the Lord to search our hearts, our thoughts, our motives, everything in our inward being and purify it, to purify our hearts. The fifth thing is that we need to be broken over our sin. He says lament and mourn and weep. He didn't just say one of the things. He says all three. He says let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now in the past I've read this and be like, man, what like a sad, like this is not an encouraging passage at all. But in the context of this, we have to understand, I think James wants us to understand that sin is not a light thing and we shouldn't take it lightly. Right? We have to admit in humility what our sin truly is. Because if we're going to see things God's way, we need to see sin God's way. Is that it is, it's an offense against the God of the universe who created us, but it's also it's an offense against the God who sent his son to die to save us that we're saying no to. That's not a light thing. James is saying it should cause us to be broken. It should cause us to be sad 
over our sin. It should cause our laughter to become mourning. It should cause our joy to be gloom. Now, this kind of feels like a low place to be, to be lamenting, mourning, weeping, and gloomy. We're in a low place. But in this low place, God makes us a promise, and it's a promise that we can only access when we are in a low place. Verse 10, it says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. We humble ourselves. We bend our knee before him. We agree with what he says. We mourn our sin. It says, and he will lift us up, right? Instead of trying to strive and cover the position or place the things of other people, instead of trying to raise ourselves up, we humble ourselves before him and he will lift us up. He does the lifting. That's his job. It's so backwards, right, to how we want to live, to how the world lives. The world says promote yourself, push yourself up, climb the ladder. Jesus says humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. There's a really great book on humility by Andrew Murray. It's called Humility. Uh, super easy title to remember. And there's a, a, about a paragraph or a couple paragraphs from here that, that I want to, to end with. Because um, I was going to kind of say what he said, but he says it way better. So he says, he says, just yesterday I was asked the question, how am I to conquer this pride? The answer was simple. Two things are needed. Do what God says is your work. Humble yourself. Trust him to do what he says is his work. He will exalt you. The command is clear. Humble yourself. That does not mean that it is your work to conquer and cast out the pride of your nature and to form within yourself the lowliness of the holy Jesus. No, this is God's work. The very essence of that exaltation wherein he lifts you up into the real likeness of his beloved son. What the command does mean is this. Take every opportunity of humbling yourself before God and man in the faith of the grace that is already working in you, in the assurance of the more grace for victory that is coming, up to the light that conscience each time flashes upon the pride of the heart and its workings. Notwithstanding all, there may be a failure and failing, standing persistently as under the unchanging command, humble yourself. Accept with gratitude everything that God allows from within or without, from friend or enemy, in nature or in grace, to remind you of your need of humbling and to help you to it. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us enough to both uh, get in our face and, and shake us up a little bit, Lord, and to help us realize the gravity of our own pride and selfishness and sinful desires, Lord, but to overshadow that, Lord, with the magnitude of your grace and the abundance of your grace that you will give us. And so we pray that you would help us to rely on your grace. You'd help us to lean into your strength, that you'd help us to make ourselves low, and that you'd allow us to remember and to see, Lord, um, as you will undoubtedly give us uh, many opportunities, Lord, in this coming week to, uh, to humble ourselves and to, to be humbled. And things are going to happen where our pride is hurt. And instead of shirking back, Lord, would you allow us to lean into it and say, we're in good company, being humble, because this is where Jesus is. We just pray you'd work that into our hearts. And Lord, we trust that you will exalt us in due time. You will do that work in us. And you will make us uh, what you want us to be. 
And we know that we'll be transformed one day fully into the image of Jesus. When we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. We pray that you would just minister these things to our hearts, um, cement them in our hearts, Lord. We just give you the rest of this evening. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is like, like, a, it's like a PS, like a little bonus, like when you watch all the credits and then there's like that little like 20 seconds at the end of the cartoon. Anyways, okay, he says, I thought there was something missing. Okay, he says, reckon humility to be indeed the mother virtue, your very first duty before God, the one perpetual safeguard of the soul, and set your heart upon it as the source of all blessing. The promise is divine and sure. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. See that you do the one thing that God asks, humble yourself. God will see that he does the one thing that he has promised. He will give more grace. He will exalt you in due time.